banking business model is broken. The question is, how can we rebuild it? Embedded finance presents a massive opportunity for banks to play a new role in the financial services ecosystem, offering more revenue streams, lower costs, and higher margins. Our new report, Better Banking Business Model, Embedded Finance with a Path to Grow, is a must-read for banks considering the smartest next step. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service to download the report for free. That's bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. That's all one word, all lowercase, everybody. Okay, let's start today's show. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sam Mall. I don't think I had to tell you this, but 2020 has been a turbulent year for pretty much everyone. We've dealt with a pandemic, widespread social unrest, and now we're also in a recession. This has been a year of struggle and strain, but it's not to say that hardships have been equally shared. During this pandemic, Black and Latino communities have been hit the hardest, not just by the U.S. growing COVID-related death toll, but also in terms of financial loss. In today's show, we're talking about the U.S. racial wealth gap differences in income and income losses, like those experienced as a result of the coronavirus lockdowns, is one factor, but it doesn't tell the full story about why the United States racial wealth gap is widening. To dig into this topic, I'm joined today by some fantastic guests. Joining me today, returning to the show, we have Jennifer Tesher, the president and CEO of the Financial Health Network in lovely Chicago. I'm assuming, Jennifer. I am, Sam. How are you? Oh my, I'm good. Oh my God, I miss Chicago pizza. Um, and small Cheval burgers, so bad. Um, oh my God, I miss it so bad. It's great to have you on. We love Jennifer um, here at 11FS. And also making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Yemi Rose, the founder of Of Color. Thanks for joining us, Yemi. Um, in New York, I'm assuming? Uh, actually, in New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, you know, everything's legal in New Jersey, to quote Hamilton. There you go. Um, can you tell us a little bit, what's the 30-second pitch of Of Color? Uh, yeah, so sure. We're an enterprise fintech platform focused on closing the racial wealth gap. You know, so we're, we're tackling a problem first in the workplace, and we help large companies improve the financial health of their employees of color, giving them content, PFM tools, and services built around how we engage with money. And just to give everybody a little bit of a backdrop of um, some of Yemi's certifications, you know, formerly of Prudential, BlackRock, KPMG, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but of color was part of the MetLife Digital Accelerator, which is part of Techstars, right? Yep, we're uh, still in the middle of the accelerator program. Oh, and that's fun. Okay, good for you. So you haven't slept in a couple of weeks. And <laughs> last but not least, in months, yeah. And last but not least, we have Reese Gibbons, president and CTO at Greenwood, joining us. Oh my God, I love everything about Greenwood. So Reese, good luck keeping this in th- under thirty seconds. But how would you describe what Greenwood Bank is going to be? Yeah. So thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. So Greenwood, we are a modern day bank for the culture. And what that means is is that we essentially want to recirculate some of those dollars that are are out there back into the Black community. We want to be able to educate, empower folks to to do more with their money. Uh, We have a tremendous amount of spending power, which we'll talk about, uh, I guess, here shortly. But we want to uh, we want folks to be able to have a place to go to save that money, uh, to be able to spend that money and also all, uh, to essentially use that capital to create wealth. And Yemi, you're in Charlotte or just outside of Charlotte. And uh, also to certify and, and set you up as a subject matter expert here, former uh, TD Bank, Bank of America, also an adjunct professor at Wilmington, um, if I read that right. Is that true? That's correct. I did that for about 10 years. And, okay. and uh, 
Yeah. So I, I loved it. That was uh, that's pr- pretty much uh, my passion. I love educating folks. And so had the opportunity to be able to do that and, and uh, love the folks over there. So. And, and just real quick for our audience, because we do have a global audience, can we talk about what the significance of, you know, and the legacy that you have with that, that term Greenwood? Why name Greenwood? That's a, that's a great question. And I try to share that as often as I can. This, it goes back to the early 1900s, specifically 1920, when there was a town in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, nicknamed uh, Black Wall Street. And there was a Greenwood Financial District. And it was a period of time where folks had migrated west. Uh, and brought their trade skills and abilities, and they developed a thriving economy of about ten to twenty thousand people. Essentially, um, that was that was essentially burned down. But within that 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 town, a dollar, every dollar that went in, it recirculated thirty six times. And the beauty of that was that it was uh, you know every dollar uh, had a job essentially, right? And it, it, folks were able to buy, lend, sell. Uh, it, it was fantastic until what we know to have happened, which was that it was burned down because of uh, racism and bigotry. Uh, and so uh, we want to bring that back and we pay homage to it with with Greenwood. So um, thanks for doing that. Um, I really do appreciate it. And there, I mean, just flat out, there's a legacy to that actual um, name. And so I, I can tell you from the team at 11FS, from Jennifer, I know Yemi and myself, we all want to see Greenwood succeed and, you know, backers like um, and, and folks on the team, like killer Mike, you've got ambassador Andrew young. And I think his son actually, um, is, is there too. Uh, my good friend, John Hope Bryant, um, of operation hope has made some great introductions there. I've lived in Atlanta for 10 years. So where haven't you lived? Yes. If there was ever <laughs> the time, <laughs> yeah. If ever there was a time and the need for companies like of color and, um, uh, Greenwood and what Jennifer does in Chicago, we're living through it right now. So, Let's jump into our first segment and let's set up um, a couple of context, if you will, around the topic that we're going to be discussing today. And let me start with this. Um, we're recording this a day after even more um, social unrest in Philadelphia. Um, yet another shooting of a young black man, Walter Wallace, by the police, a 27-year-old um, that looks like he had some uh, mental health issues. Um, the facts are still coming out now, but basically shot in front of his mother, uh, to set context for our listeners. I live in Jacksonville, Florida. I am less than 45 minutes from Brunswick, Georgia, where Ahmed, um, Arbery was murdered. Um, this is a rough time in the U S I'll just flat out say that, um, it's a rough time for all of us. Um, but you can't tell about our voices, but Jennifer and I are white. Um, Yemi and Reese are, are black men and just, Flat out, we have an issue in the U.S. that has been with us, really, it goes back to the founding of our country. And it will weave in and out of the story arc that we're about to talk about. But take that into context as we start. So when we, heard that, when we hear this term wealth gap, sometimes the first thing we think of is just basically income. What's the difference between income and wealth equality? Well, wealth is the sum of resources available to a household at a point in time as much as it's clearly influenced by the income of the household, but the two are not perfectly correlated. So what difference does this make? Well, on a basic level, how do race and financial security intersect? Who's affected by the wealth gap? Our producers did some great research. In 2016, the median net worth of non-Hispanic white households was $143,600. The median net worth of a black household was $12,920. That's from the U.S. Census Bureau. We could just stop the show right now in all honesty. 
um, with that statement. Native American wealth has not even been measured since 2000. At that time, their median household net worth was just $5,700. So where did this gap first emerge? Oh, good Lord. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting slightly wound up, everybody, <laughs> reading through these. And I've actually read the show notes as we got ready to do this. So um, actually, Yummy, you know, with Of Color, let's start there because this is really what your focus is, right? Is around education, if you will, for the Black community. Right, uh, 100%. And, you know, when we think about uh, the cause of the gap, it really, geez, uh, depends on how far back you want to go, right? So it, it obviously starts with slavery, with the transfer of Black value, labor without compensation, and then the racist backlash against progress during reconstruction. You know, we can we can talk about the failure of Friedman's bank. Uh, I think Friedman held uh, about 75 million at the time, which would be about 1.5 billion in deposits today. You know, we saw it growing during Jim Crow, uh, where Black Americans were deemed inferior, and even as far as being denied insurance coverage. We have the social welfare programs of the after the Second World War, the GI Bill, FHA, that kind of you know built a strong middle class with people who see themselves as white and relegated people of color to the underclass. And then, of course, the Great Recession, uh, where we saw lenders coming into communities and, and writing tons of subprime loans. And it's probably even it's increasing right now with the impact of COVID uh, on Black unemployment and really the invisibility of small minority businesses to the SBA. Um, and while we're not really going to know the scale for a while, um, you know, just as it took us uh, some time to uncover during the Great Recession, uh, it's probably enormous, frankly. You know, Jennifer, and, and for those that don't know the work that Jennifer does, man, if you want some statistics, if you want some studies, if you want some stats, um, Jennifer can blow your absolute mind on this. Um, and, and Jennifer, one of the things I read and it really has me concerned um, in our current situation is the number of women that have left the workforce. We've seen studies on this. And again, it is um, predominantly affecting the black and Latino community. Yet again, I mean, we're setting this ourselves up for yet another crisis. Yeah, uh, I thought Yemi did a great job of uh, dating this back to slavery and taking us through some of the most important milestones, uh, negative milestones about where this wealth gap comes from. I think, What's important to say is we've been reading and talking for the last decade about growing inequality in this country, wealth inequality, but it's only in the last few months that we've actually started to talk about what those numbers look like when you actually disaggregate the data by race. So there's growing inequality period, but it's just incredibly stark when you see how bad the situation is for people of color and particularly for black people. So there is no one, oh, if we only do this, or if we only would do that, this is a complex structural set of challenges that has been 400 years in the making. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt to start unwinding it, but this is a journey. And there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. I do feel like as the, I'm sort of the person on this show who can talk a little bit about banks, I think, because I'm sort of the non-fintech person on the show. We invest in fintechs, but we also work with a lot of banks. I think it's incredibly important to call out the 
outsized role that the banking industry played in this wealth gap. Because as Yemi talked about with the GI Bill, with folks coming home from the war, banks wouldn't make loans to people of color, uh, certainly not in neighborhoods in which they drew red circles around them called redlining. Um, and, you know, we might want to blame FHA and blame the government because it was ultimately the government that created those maps, but the banks were complicit in following through. So when you start to think about the fact that owning a home is one of the most important sources of wealth for people in this country, and from the very beginning, Black people were shut out of that opportunity. And even today, home ownership rates are dramatically different by race. And it goes deeper than that, because when you think about the appraisal process, for instance, how homes are appraised during the purchase process or the refi process, homes in communities of color are regularly appraised for less, period. And Jennifer, I'm glad you brought that up. I live in Jacksonville, Florida, um, and there was a story that went uh, national here of an uh, uh, interracial couple um, that had their home appraised, put on the market, and um, they had it appraised. They weren't exactly thrilled with the amount that it was appraised for. They went in and removed um, all the photos of the kids, the wife, and everything else, and it appraised for about $45,000 more than it did in that first uh, swing through. So folks, if you think this is something that has gone away, um, I'm sorry. I mean, you're, you're terribly mistaken. And, and I'm glad, Yemi, you started with talking about the Freedman's Bank. And we'll have a link to my interview with John Hope Bryant, where he went into the whole history of the Freedman's Bank. But it gets back to that, that there's a legacy that we have to acknowledge in the U.S. and there's importance in those names. And so again, Reese, when we talk about Greenwood Bank and what you're, you're looking to do there, I think it's, there is some importance on educating people, both black, white, Latino, you take your pick on the importance of, of this legacy that we have here in the U.S. when it comes to this wealth gap and what cost it. Yes, no, I, I agree with uh, Yemi as well as uh, Jennifer and, and kind of laying out the foundation of how everything started. And I'd like to take it from a different level uh, in terms of the conversation and look at it from where we are today, right? And and kind of work backwards. And so if you look at, and you just mentioned kind of where we are with COVID, but if you just look at uh, in general, and, and Jennifer, to your point, I had to, or Sam, to your point, I, I had to do that. I had to, um, in order to sell my home in New Jersey, we had to take down all the photos so folks didn't know that it was a black home uh, being sold. And uh, so, so I, I understand that. But if you just take a step back and essentially look at a capital perspective, so there are businesses that are failing, that are going under, that didn't have access to PPP at the time that it was released uh, or that the government released it. And there are banks, I think, you know, some banks, uh, at least in the US, got 90% of that business. But you see businesses, I think one in six or, or two in five black businesses are going under as a result because they don't have capital, right? So if you look at all the small regional banks, they're being pulled out of the market. I mean, I go back to my days growing up, Meridian Bank in Philadelphia, it's no longer there. It's now a version of Wells Fargo through many mergers, right? Those banks are not lending to inside the community. And so businesses that need to thrive are leaving. I live in the Charlotte area. Those businesses are leaving. We had restaurant week not too long ago. And the number of businesses that used to be there 
aren't there, right, from a Black perspective. So banks play a huge role in having capital and getting that capital out to other businesses, not just Black businesses, but businesses in general. And that is not being fulfilled. That's one of the things that we want to do from a Greenwood perspective is to be able to provide that capital to small, medium, large size businesses. We want to desperately do that because there is a need there. You look at one of our founders, Ryan uh, Glover, he essentially uh, is a creative, uh, he's a brilliant mind, has businesses on top, but he doesn't have a banking relationship because no one will lend to him, right? And so there is a market there for people who need capital. And if you want to start a business, what do you need? You need capital. Not everybody can go through an accelerator and generate millions of dollars. So there is a need there. So Greenwood, uh, in addition to, you know, creating uh, spending and savings accounts, we definitely want to be in a position where we're able to help those businesses continue to succeed and thrive. You know what, what I find interesting about this group that we have here. So for folks that don't know, I grew up in Detroit, now live down in Jacksonville, Florida. But again, we have Atlanta, Charlotte, and um, New York represented here. I was listening to a podcast over the weekend, a Chicago, Chicago. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Detroit, so it's just Chicago, whatever. But <laughs> moving on. And New Jersey, I'm sorry, yummy, Jersey, um, is being represented. There you go. But, um, you know, I was listening to a podcast and I found it interesting because they were talking about gentrification and, you know, its impact on cities and neighborhoods. You know, that's, that's one of the things they worry about in Detroit is that neighborhoods are losing their history because of gentrification. When you see a city collapse like Detroit has, one of the greatest ways that you can create wealth is traditionally in the U.S. through home ownership, right? That's part of the American dream and being able to get into the market. And, you know, and, and this podcast I was listening to was talking about the impact of gentrification and what it has. And Yemi, the point they made, I want to get your feedback on there, was when you talk about investment in a community, the idea of throwing the money into parks and streetlights and everything sounds great. Throw it into people. Don't throw it into the parks. And I was wondering what or, you know your reaction to something like that would be, especially when we're talking about the wealth gap. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. I think uh, it makes sense to uh, give the money directly to the the folks that need it. Um, I'm a, a I'm a huge fan of direct capital infusions into African-American descendants of slaves, whether it's through tax breaks or direct payments. Um, and, and going back to the conversation just briefly about on, on banking, um, I agree that we need, uh, we, there's a desperate need for black banks in these communities. But I think the difficulty is that the underwriting standards, if they're not, if, they're, if the underwriting standards are different from say, chase, then they're going to have different capital requirements, right? Because you have a high velocity of withdrawals and you have a community with lower uh, average balances. So I'm in addition to uh, having black banks in place, I'm also uh, a real fan of a system that's essentially backstopped by the government. Um, So, you know, postal banking has been, uh, has come up recently. And I think, you know, the average citizen, just like we're talking about here, needs to be, needs to also be be too big to fail and to, to have access to that kind of credit cheaply. Yeah, and I was watching Jennifer smile the entire time you went there. So, all right, I'm gonna sit back. Jennifer's about to preach. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm actually going to, I think I'm going to talk about something you're not expecting, Sam. Um, I wanted to get in on this conversation about people versus place. And I want to suggest that I think it's both. I spent um, the early part of my career after being a journalist working at Shorebank, which was 
really uh, the nation's first double bottom line community development bank uh, on the south side of Chicago. And Shore Bank, the whole idea of Shore Bank was that uh, neighborhoods need uh, community uh, signs of strength, that banks don't just play a role in uh, providing capital to local businesses, to uh, real estate owners, et cetera, that they send a signal to other investors that it's safe to come in and uh, make investment in the community. Funny enough, I was a people person in a place-based institution because most of the work that I did was thinking about how do you improve the financial health of the people who live in that community. The fact is those two things go together. Businesses aren't gonna locate in a neighborhood that's got broken out streetlights and trash on the ground. Um, but you could also say the same thing in reverse. And so I think in the community development world in particular, there's been a real challenge to bring the people strategies and the place strategies together. For me, the lesson of COVID is that everything is interconnected. Everything is interconnected. And uh, we're not going to succeed in helping to move the needle for people until we bring all of those factors uh, that influence their wealth, their financial health, their success together uh, so that it reflects the way they actually live their lives. And I think that's what's so challenging about this is that there are so many different strategies that need to be in play, but you know, each of us can only do one or two of those at a time. And so a little bit of this is a herding cats problem um, and recognizing that each one of us has an important role to play, but that we're only one part of the solution. We really need to be engaging, collaborating, partnering with others. Yeah. And, and you know what I love about that? And I'm glad you went there, Jennifer. And, and, uh, what I, I firmly believe, we talk a lot about this when we talk about women in the workforce or, or younger people in the workforce, is that if they see people that actually look like them in the corner offices, there becomes a belief that they can achieve that. And so, Reese, I'm going to give you a shout out. I looked at the um, leadership team at Greenwood Bank, and thank God it looked like what I thought it should. It's not just, by the way, it's not just a group of young uh, black men from the tech industry. Again, you got Ambassador Young, you've got women represented, but your executive team represents what Greenwood Bank is supposed to represent. And so I got to applaud you on that. Well done. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. So that was re something really important to us because when you look across the spectrum at, at most of the banks, you don't see that, right? And I was so alarmed and disappointed with Mr. Scarf um, at Wells Fargo for the comments that he made simply because, you know, I've, I've been to war essentially with some of those people that work at those, those banks across the spectrum. I've been in business school with those folks. Uh, I've uh, worked on projects with those folks. And I know that that talent does exist. And we're pigeonholed into silos where we don't get the opportunity to excel or to essentially be given face time in front of the executives. So that way, because it's, it really is all about a dog and pony show, right? To essentially show your face. This is what I can do. You know, this is, you know, you get hobnob time with the executive uh, and that essentially raises your profile. And unfortunately, uh, black people, Latinx people are not given that opportunity. And also if I could just uh, kind of pivot back, Sam, and kind of talk about, and I know this is probably uh, Yemi's uh, world, so 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Yimmy, but I, I wanted to talk about the kind of the idea of home ownership and from a taxation standpoint, right? Because I feel like from an African American, from from a Latinx perspective, you know, when you go to sell a house uh, and you have the proceeds and you you make uh, X amount on those proceeds, you've got a starting point uh, to continue to move up to the next, you know, to move to the suburbs, to get the gated community, to do whatever it is that you want. You've put yourself on a path to success, essentially, or to wealth, right? And you stay in that home for, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. When you sell that home, you've got a huge chunk of cash, right? And the government tells you, oh, yeah, you have to pay capital gains tax on this amount of money, but it's light years more than what a home would be, say, in the Black community, right? And so you don't have that ability to take that dollar or take those dollars and then share it with your kids or your grandkids or give them a better opportunity for education, help them with their first home, et cetera. So there's a huge gap there. And that's one of the things that, you know, from a Greenwood perspective, we're talking about uh, educating our folks about the importance of home ownership and investing. And, you know, it's plus, plus, plus all the things that other folks and communities have been doing, specifically uh, going back to the recirculation of dollars in the community. That's something that we want to do as well. So, I mean, that's something near and dear to my heart. So I just wanted to quickly mention, and I'm glad you went there, Reese. Uh, you had mentioned the CEO of Wells Fargo. Uh, um, it was Mr. Scharf. Um, and his comments about not being able to find enough qualified Black candidates for the diversity numbers that they were trying to hit. And I uh, just found this interesting. I'm going to read this real quick. I'm not going to make a commentary on it. We'll just move on. But I read this in an article that Mr. Scharf was still a senior at John Hopkins University when he started working at the company part-time at Chase having sent his resume to Jamie Diamond through Family Connections. Six months into the job, he was named Mr. Diamond's assistant and included every meeting learning broadly about business and how decisions get made. There's nothing wrong with that, but proximity to power and to wealth typically leads to that. That's just throughout history. That's not unique to the U.S. So if you want to find qualified candidates and you currently don't have them, you might not be looking in the right place and I'd love to take you to Atlanta, introduce you to some historically black colleges that absolutely kick ass. And yes, Yami, I will give you the last word on this one. Go ahead. <laughs> so so it's, it's fascinating, right? Like um, a few months ago before even entering, you know, this accelerator program with Techstars, I was out there knocking on doors. Well, uh, not really uh, since COVID, but you know, Figuratively speaking, knocking on doors, trying to, to get some level of attention and to kind of now have a peek behind a curtain at the networks that have now been opened up and the networks that a lot of folks who have gone to some of these top business schools have just at their fingertips and how just being able to initiate a conversation with someone can make or break your business. It's huge. And that's something that black people in general don't have. And then, you know, uh, going back to what Reese was talking about, homeownership, homeownership is the biggest lever in terms of the transfer of wealth for anyone, black or white. Um, and if you look at it now, uh, you know, only about 40% of black folk own their own home. And that's only up a few percentage points from the 60s, right? Uh, you know, we have less retirement savings. We're rarely in a position to help the generation after us. So I always say, you know, we're in the middle of a low-key economic apartheid that really doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Oh, that's a good phrase. Um, so with that, we actually have to take a break, hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. 
This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech, combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology. Only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at MyTechSystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personalized digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. We love making podcasts at 11FS, and this isn't our only one. If you haven't checked out our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, then you're missing out because we published some of our best ever episodes over the past few months. From the future of work to the biggest industry in SureTech news, there's a topic in there for anyone who wants to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Head to ii.11fs.com, that's ii.11fs.com, to start listening or just search InsureTech Insider on your podcast provider. Okay, with that, folks, let's get back to the show. All right, we want to talk a little bit in the next uh, couple of minutes about how then we close this wealth gap. So, you know, what are some of the fundamentals to bridge the racial wealth gap? What can we do that hasn't been done? This isn't a new problem. And Jennifer, again, you've been in this space like me for a while watching this. I know you're as frustrated as I am. If you were to pick one or two major things to start with, where would you start? That's a really hard question. I think I'll go back, though, to what we were talking about just before the break around this idea that success is significantly tied to who you know. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but that's true. It's true in many, many facets of life. And it's as fundamental as that. Look at who your friends are. Look at who you spent time with. Look at who your coworkers are. Look at who you went to college with and are still in touch with, to Yanni's point. If you don't find ways to build relationships with people different from us, who don't look like us, who've had different experiences from us, then I think it's going to be very difficult to close the racial wealth gap. We can throw lots and lots of money at it, and I have no problem with that. I think we should. Uh, But if we don't address the underlying systemic challenges, I fear that we won't actually close the gap in a permanent way. And so, you know, when there are CEO jobs open, you know, like the next time Wells Fargo is looking for a CEO, for example, the people making that decision, who do they know? Who are they going to call? Personally, I've really made it my business to try to expand my own personal networks. Because when you think about hiring, particularly for more senior roles, you immediately think about people you know. And I can put out the best job description and hire the best firm and do a fantastic search, but it's always easier to hire the person you know. And so I just think that 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 issue of diversifying our own personal networks is critical. I'm I'm curious, um, Reese, something, there's a term that comes up over and over and over again when you read about either Greenwood, the neighborhood itself in, in Tulsa back in the day, um, or you talk about your mission itself is that, that term community and that dollar recycling through the community. And, and I'm a massive believer in community. And I think I've t- 
touching back on what Jennifer just talked about, right? Your network or your community, you know, why is that such an important concept for Greenwood as you're getting ready to launch this bank? So when we think about this and we, we've had a, some internal conversations about whether or not we should call our community family or not, or, you know, if you're part of the culture, we, we say, you know, welcome to the fam. And, you know, so we do talk about community and family as if they're interchangeable, right? And we do want to build that community. We, we want to desperately bring it back. And uh, I agree with what Jennifer was stating. And I think, I think the whole system from a, from a government in terms of how the U.S. is kind of created um, it, it's one whole holistic circle, right? And what I mean by that is it really starts at the education piece. It starts in our homes, uh, building community. It starts with, you know, hey, Reese, can my daughter play with my neighbor's daughter, right? With no, with no issues, right? So we're forming the social bond there, right? So we're creating that. But then it also, from an education standpoint, where there, there isn't a divide there. So, you know, not to, you know, my wife works in a title one school and unfortunately our kids where we live at, uh, our kids go to a different type of school, right? And she sees it on a daily basis, the amount of services that our children get relative to the service that she get in her title one school. And not that I wanna go into a tangent about education, but that's part of the community, right? And so we've got to, start there building up through education, financial awareness, teach the skill set that folks will need in the workplace to be able to live in society, be able to balance a checkbook, be able to understand credit or debt. Why is it that, you know, black people, for example, have such a, a, a huge uh, revolving credit, right? Uh, for those that have access to credit, it's because, you know, number one, they weren't provided the education around that. Uh, so, so I'm a firm believer that we've got to start from an education standpoint. But back to your question in community, because I don't want to let that go. I, it's something that we, we desperately want to do. Other communities have a dollar that circulates in their community for up to nine times, right? And some up to 17 times. So it's important that we bring that, that those dollars back into the Black community, show them where those Black businesses are, allow that dollar to recirculate in the community, because there and only there is how change will start to happen, in addition to everything I just said. Yeah, and, and Yemi, um, it's interesting because you actually went there early on when we're talking about who bears the responsibility. And obviously, as Jennifer said, man, you can go all over the place for this. But I mean, w when you look at this, you know, and we talk about responsibility, I mean, how much does your your local, your city, the federal government play into this also? Yeah, so uh, they play a, a great deal, right? It's a huge role, and we saw, you know, in the in the decade after the Civil Rights Act was passed, we saw some movement uh, towards equity before it was kind of dismantled by Reagan, right? But no matter what we do, uh, the thing that we need to confront first is really the lie that Black Lives Matter less, right? And it, it, it's a lie that's so pervasive that even Black people we often believe it ourselves, and we see that in study after study. And kids fall prey to it early on and live with this kind of PTSD that comes from being black in America. Um, and it manifests its way in the way we organize ourselves as a society or systems, where neighborhoods are organized or school systems, everything. Um, but these systems are built and sustained by people. And, and the way to combat that, in my view, is to call out the lie of, of, of white supremacy every single time, whether you're black or white. Uh, you know, in your day-to-day -day life, in your workplace, and how you engage with the government, and how you engage with money. Uh, and I'm also a big believer in celebrating Blackness, right? Because when you do that, it causes everyone to quietly question 
their belief in that lie, right? Um, blacks and whites, you know, how are you so happily black, you know? So I'm a, a big fan of kind of living out loud and overdoing it to combat the constant bombardment that we get from society. So we are, um, Lord, what are we? Seven days away, eight days away from an election, if y'all didn't know. Um, hey, there's a presidential and a congressional election that's coming up. Um, so we are we are living through historic times, um, obviously. Um, it's one of the things that's interesting to me, and I'd love to get y'all's feedback on this, is what you know you think is actually going to take place as a result of the election, whether it goes either way. I mean, w- one thing that stands out to me, um, and I think should be noted, George Floyd um, was arrested and subsequently murdered um, for passing supposedly passing counterfeit currency, uh, a $20 bill. Um, I can name a global bank that is paying a $10 billion fine. I'll just go ahead and say that uh, without naming them. Is paying a $10 billion fine. No one will go to jail. Not a single person will go to jail over that $10 billion check that's going to be written. And by the way, they'll be fine. Um, and with the opioid crisis, right? You've got uh, Purdue who... That family socked away, I think, $8 million, or no, $10 billion, $10 billion to make sure they weren't impacted. They're only paying eight. They're fine. Again, no one is going to go to jail. I think 43,000 Americans are dead. So in the backdrop of that depressing stats I just put out there, I apologize, everybody, <laughs> for that. But are you actually optimistic that we're going to make some progress in the next uh, few upcoming years? And, and Jennifer, man, I hate to throw that to you. Um, but are you optimistic? Do you think coming out of this election cycle, we'll actually see some change? Yeah, I am sorry that you went to me first. I apologize. I have to go to someone. I mean, it's only fair. Listen, I tend to be not so much an optimist, but a realist. Uh, but I'm a glass half full person. Um, when I talk to people, particularly in communities of color, uh, I'm skeptical about whether, quote unquote, this time is different. But there are a number of people that I've talked to who feel like the difference is that the people out in the streets um, are not just people of color, that they're joined by white people. Uh, and that can really make a, re- make a real difference. Uh, but it only makes a difference if we don't let up and we start to take real action, protesting, uh, being out in the streets, having our voices heard, voting. Those are all super important things. Um, but those are really hard to sustain over time, particularly if um, you don't see action start to happen. So uh, I worry a little bit that in particular because of the COVID fatigue, people are just tired and the fatigue of the last four years, uh, whether or not you are a Trump supporter, um, this has been a crazy last four years and it's been exhausting for everybody. Uh, So I do worry about that. Um, And listen, elections matter. And I think that depending on who wins next week's election, there will be very different outcomes. And the divisiveness that uh, sort of came out of the Pandora's box over the last four years, that's going to be tough for anyone to put back. Uh, um, So, you know, I'm hopeful that if there's um, you know, if Biden wins, there's an opportunity to try to build off of the momentum from this year around these issues of race and race equity. 
and an opportunity to really talk, have a real conversation with the nation. Um, and if Trump wins, I expect we're going to see more of the same. And that's scary. So, Yemi, I'm curious. Um, and yeah, hell with it. It's, you know, it's 11FS show and I work for 11FS, so I can say this. I'd love just to get your feedback. Uh, Jared Kushner, advisor to the president and his son-in-law, this weekend on Fox News said, the thing we've seen in the black community, which is mostly democratic, is that President Trump's policies are the policies that can help people break out of the problems that they're complaining about, but he can't want them to be more successful more than they want to be successful. Yeah. Uh, he said the quiet part out loud, right? So yeah. Yeah, he did. It's amazing. <laughs> he, he did. Look, um, care to respond. Yeah. So it's, um, it's that view is pretty pervasive, right? It comes, I mean, like I have two beautiful black girls and, in, and, in, in school in the United States We're originally from Jamaica. Um, and, you know, you just it's you see the kind of major impact that it, it has, at least growing up here in a black body and the views that people have specifically about individual hard work and bootstrapping. Right. And if you go back to how these children are now taught about even just MLK Day. Right. Or yeah, Martin Luther King Day and Black History Month, it all harkens back to I have a dream. And, and, and what's the, the quote that we get from that? We get, you know, one day you'll be judged by the uh, content of your character and not the color of your skin, which is which is great, but it, it, it overemphasizes uh, individual responsibility and kind of gives everyone else a pass when it comes to uh, acknowledging uh, inequities between groups and acknowledging that the, the history that led up to that point, right? If, if you look at that, as a lot of people do, it's kind of like, oh, this is when America changed and realized how, how you know, wrong it was to treat Black people that way. Um, but it kind of gave rise to this idea of bootstrapping. You just need to want it rather than really looking at the lingering effects of, uh, of or economic apartheid. So, <laughs> Reese. You know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things I want to note, um, and I believe I have her name right, uh, Ruby Nell Bridges Hall, I believe, was the young black student when we had the integration of the schools that had to cross that line. She's only in her 60s today. I mean, we're not talking about ancient history, folks. You know, I'm, I'll be 54 this year. She's not that much older than I am. Um, I've talked about this before. I grew up in Detroit. You know, I lived through, um, I was born in 66. So I was, you know, alive when we had tanks going down the street of, of Detroit. So that said, if I get you back on the show, say two, three years from now, Reese, how do I know that Greenwood has been a success? Get past the money part. How do I know that this new bank that's targeting a black and Latino community, how do I know it's a success? Well, I, I would go out on a limb, Sam, and maybe not too much out on a limb, but I would say that we're already a success uh, at this point, right? I would, I would already go out and say that the mere fact that we've, we've announced and we've brought the, the character of men and team and women together to create Greenwood, we're, we're already a success. What, in terms of measurement, the number of lives that we've impacted, the number of homes that are filled, uh, the number of kids that are going on to college potentially without, you know, the, the burden of a student loan, uh, the number of businesses that are created, the number of uh, estates and wills that are created as a result of the education, uh, the number of folks that have capital to be able to do other things. 
I think that's the legacy that I want to leave. And it's one of the reasons why I came to Greenwood, right? So it's not just uh, aside from the money, like you said, it's, it's more of, hey, how can we make an impact in the community, right? What can we do that is missing or has been missing for so long, right? And, and, and learn from history, from Freedmen's and from Tulsa and learn from some of those. Um, and, and, and hopefully, prayerfully, uh, history won't be repeated and we'll be able to excel and we'll be able to do great things in, in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where Greenwood is based, in Charlotte, North Carolina, in Philadelphia, in New Brunswick, in Newark, in New York City, and all the way out you know, to Chicago and to LA and some of these other communities that are in desperate need of, of, of hope and opportunity. I think Greenwood can do that. So I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this episode, folks. Um, I believe we're on this earth to impact change. It better damn well be positive change. We have three people on this show that are all doing that and have devoted their lives to doing that. So folks, that wraps up today's discussion. If you want to hear more about FinTech Insider episodes around this incredibly important topic, check out episode 436 from earlier this year when we talked about COVID-19 and the underbanked in the U.S. So I want to thank every single one of you for joining and want to give you a chance to give a shout out to where people can learn more about you and your organization. And Jennifer, we'll start with you. Sure. Visit our website at www.finhealthnet.org. All right. And uh, Yemi, what about you and Of Color? Yeah. So um, you can check us out at ofcolor.com. Uh, and um, note that uh, this is just where we're starting. Our goal is to ultimately become the most uh, used platform for people of color. All right. And Reese, what about you and Greenwood? So you can visit www.bankgreenwood.com. Find out more about us. Hopefully you'll join. Easy as as it comes right there. As for me, it's Sam Mall on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. And if you don't, please, most importantly, leave us a review. Okay. It really helps others find the podcast and learn more about the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation and find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thanks so much for listening. Go out and vote. Thank you.